biggest issues that we see uh, with real estate law are around a, a couple of things. One, buyers making sure that they do their due diligence properly and that they really look into the things that are important to them before they sign a contract or as part of a condition period of a contract. And then for sellers, like hands down, the biggest issues we have are when they just, they don't have the real property report, which is a survey of the property that shows um, uh, fences, decks, structures. And inevitably they come to see us and we ask them, we have your real property report and there's a problem. And not only can it delay a whole transaction, but it can actually kill a whole transaction and leave a, a seller liable to the buyers for breach of contract. So they, they hands down, those are sort of the two uh, from opposing sides of things, issues that come up frequently and, and have significant impacts on people. Episode 17 of Access to Justice. I'm your host, Evan Clark of Kahane Law, and I'm joined by my co-host, Heather Malarick of Merrick Law. Welcome, Heather. Thanks, Evan. We are joined today by a very special guest, Kim McDonald of McDonald Advisory. If you didn't know, Kim is a financial advisor and insurance advisor with Raymond James Limited. We are a Canadian podcast with a mission to educate Canadians about the law. We interview experts in law, mental health, and finance, focusing on the topics that create the greatest barriers to entry into the justice system. You can find us on YouTube on our A2J podcast channel and online at a2jpodcast.com. We are pleased to welcome today's guest, Mr. Jeff Kahane. So as you might've heard in my intro, I'm with Kahane Law. So I've got something to do with this guy that's joining us today. Jeff, welcome. Hey, welcome and thanks for having me. Yeah, our pleasure. Um, why did you agree to do this? Um, you know, it, 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 before law, I was a school teacher and uh, education, helping people understand uh, their situation, the legal situation, all that, uh, is just a great thing to be able to do. And I think really useful for people to have a better understanding of the law as it relates to their lives versus relying on Facebook law or US law or TV law or my friend at the water cooler law. Um, so sometimes those aren't accurate. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Heather, in your experience, have you found those to be accurate sources? Um, only the good wife, I would say, is really reliable. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> no, not generally speaking. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, everyone knows Suits is actually a documentary. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, Ms. Kim McDonald, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Evan. I am uh, appreciative that you guys continue to have me back to sit on your panel and listen in and, and uh, interject when a question pops into my noggin. So thanks for having me again today. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. So for those that don't know Jeff, Jeff is, I think you exclusively do real estate. Is that correct, Jeff? Yeah, my personal practice, I love, I love happy law. I love the real estate side of things. Yeah, happy lot. So Jeff has been doing real estate for a number of years. We don't want to date him or anything, but he's been doing it long enough. And um, so we thought it'd be great to talk about what are the kind of questions that he hears over and over again, because chances are there's a reason he hears them over and over again that people don't understand. And uh, so we can provide this resource to people who want to learn a little bit more about real estate. Um, 
So Jeff, anything uh, else you'd like to share about yourself before we get started? Because I didn't give you that much of an introduction, really. Just said, yeah, here's Jeff. Well, you know what? Um, as, as, as a firm, we kind of collect a bunch of lawyers who have a similar way of seeing life. We, we take what we do seriously, but not really ourselves. So uh, we try and have fun, enjoy every day, and uh, do a great job for our clients. And um, just kind of enjoy life. Just live it. Yeah, great. And the reason that Jeff and I are on separate cameras here is because Jeff is in Calgary and uh, I'm in Edmonton. So that's, I know that question was just really on burning on our, our listeners' minds. So, okay. So Jeff, what, what are some, what's one of the most common questions that you hear uh, across the table from a new client? Um, so I guess it would depend if they're buying or selling your house. I mean, some of the, the biggest issues that we see uh, with real estate law are around a, a couple of things. One, buyers making sure that they do their due diligence properly and that they really look into the things that are important to them before they sign a contract or as part of a condition period of a contract. And then for sellers, like, hands down, the biggest issues we have are when they just they don't have the real property report, which is a survey of the property that shows um, uh, fences, decks, structures. And inevitably, they come to see us and we ask them, we have your real property report and there's a problem. And not only can it delay a whole transaction, but it can actually kill a whole transaction and leave a, a seller liable to the buyers for breach of contract. So that they hands down those are sort of the two uh, from opposing sides of things issues that come up frequently and and have significant impacts on people yeah um rprs uh real property reports what is that how does someone get one Sure. So, they, I mean, the number one thing is to go to, you'd call a survey company. You have them come out. They survey all the, the, the lots. They show the property lines, structures, fences, decks, not trees, uh, but like structures. And um, then later it will be sent to the city or municipality that they live in for compliance. So they'll look at it and make sure that everything complies with their land use bylaws and setbacks and all that stuff that there's no encroachments anywhere. And uh, they'll either give it a stamp or some municipalities have a letter that attaches to it, just confirming so when a buyer gets it, they're assured that everything is as it's supposed to be on the property. Now, I also suggest if you're buying a property, ask the seller for it, because if they don't have it, that might be the cue for them to get their, their ducks in a row. But it also is an ability for you to see what you're actually getting on the property. It lets you see where the real property lines are, because sometimes you'll see a fence that's further away and it's not the actual property line and, and just gives you a better sense. It lets you know where there are utility right-of-ways or over land water right-of-ways where you're not allowed to build anything. And if someone says, oh, I love this house. It is like the best house ever. I picture myself under a gazebo watching you know, the mountains or whatever in the rain. Uh, but if they can't build something there because there's something that says you can't, that's probably something they want to know before they even put in an offer or, or in a condition period. And a condition period is what lets you walk away um, and everyone gets returned to their original position if you don't waive it, if it doesn't meet, meet your expectations. So you're saying during negotiations, if you're looking at buying, if you're looking seriously at buying a place, ask for a copy of the RPR. I think it's fantastic. It's, it's like a, a great opportunity for people to see what it is that they're actually getting. So... It, it, does every real estate transaction require an RPR? Well, they're, they're required only because of the contract. So um, area, the Alberta Real Estate Association, they, they've put together the contract that real estate agents use for um, people buying, selling properties in Alberta. 
and most of them are used. There's not like a law that requires it, it's just the contract that does. And of course, like any contract, it's completely negotiable. So there are people who will negotiate out of providing the real property part and scratch it out. As a buyer, you're taking a risk. So if you, let's say you're taking, you're buying a foreclosure property, no bank promises to give a, a RPR in those situations. But you know, for most uh, most transactions, they are provided. So is this the realtor then who would be asking for that from the seller or, or, or are you getting that from the lawyer? Yeah, so the buyer ultimately gets it from the lawyer. Uh, the listing agent, so the person who's acting for the seller, the real estate agent is acting for the seller, they'll ask for it from their client. Uh, it's often sort of put off uh, by people. And, and in the listing uh, contract with the realtor, there it's actually, the, I think, the only paragraph that's bolded that says, if you don't provide this, you could lose this deal. And I don't think it says get sued, but the deal could fall apart. And so it, it's like a really important part. It, it's treated contractually the same as the actual transfer of land, the document that gives ownership to the other person. So from a, from a buyer's perspective, there's a lot of uh, protection around the RPR. So it's something a seller really, you know, yes, it costs money to produce, but they really, really want to make sure they have that in place as soon as they can often even before they list the property, that, that's ideal. So Jeff, I think when I bought my home, I think I got an RPR, I have some vague memory of it. If I were to sell my home, can I pull out that file and blow the dust off and use that RPR? Do they have an expiration date? Yeah, great question. They don't expire and it, it always, I always, like I try and keep my mouth shut, but sometimes a real estate agent will say to a person, oh, it's five years old, it's eight years old, you gotta order a new one. And um, it, which is not true. Uh, if it still shows all of the um, structures on the property, so you haven't built a new fence or deck or anything like that, um, and and it is like there's no encroachments, then it will be fine. It's no problem. I would say there's one little caveat I have to that in that in 2016, uh, the Alberta Real Estate Association changed the nature of their contract, some of the terms, and now the real property report is required to show that. A seller's representations and warranties about the property are true. So, whereas uh, you know, ten years ago, if there was a restriction on the property that said uh, in the register on title that you can only have a garage, you know, more, it has to be more than three feet away from a lane, say, or something. Um, if it's two feet from the lane, you know, before they made this change, there's nothing really a buyer could do but to sue, and no one was going to spend twenty thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars to sue for something that had never been an issue. Right. But now it, there's teeth in there where a buyer doesn't have to close or make any payments until the seller provides the real property report showing that it's okay. And so now like, nothing has changed with the property or what's on title to the property. It's that change to the contract that will make it more enforceable. So you can dust it off, but definitely look at it mm -hmm. and, and, and just send it to me and we'll go through it. Okay, <laughs> okay, yeah. okay. okay. Do you attach permits to that? So you have an old RPR and you got some edits done to your garage. Could you just attach the permit for that garage and that? No, you have no. to have a whole new. And, and people will try and do that, which is kind of fun because they'll come in and it's got the development permit stamp when they wanted to add the garage. Yeah. And the city wants to know where you're planning to put the garage. And so they sometimes they even use a ruler and they draw the garage onto the real property part. And it's like, hey, that is not okay. That's not okay. That doesn't fly. <laughs> it doesn't work. No, no. Okay. Don't use the roller. It's got to be right. No, that's not okay. You got to order an updated one. 
Um, and but the permits is a, an interesting thing about these because, um, and we've had situations where a seller says, look, I don't want to pay for a real property report. Buyer, like you accept title insurance or just don't accept the real property report. And it turns out that they didn't want to offer a real property report because they had no permits, literally like no plumbing, electrical, septic, like nothing. And it was a $180,000 fix to bring things up to, uh, to get the permits done. So you have to be careful with those. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, you brought up something that I wanted to ask about. Um, but before I do that. That's psychic. You know, different offices, different cities, same firm, but it works. <laughs> same wavelength, though. Yeah, yeah. No, before I ask that question, though, I wanted to, just a quick question about a term you used. You said encroachment. What's an encroachment? Sure. So if something encroaches onto something else, it means that when a, when a structure was built, it goes onto, say, somebody else's property. So if you have a garage that encroaches onto the neighbor's property, it means part of the garage has been built past the property line onto the neighbor's property. The, uh, and something can encroach onto a right-of-way where you have utilities and whatnot. It it's, means it's, it's, someone's put something where it's not supposed to be. Um, contractually, when you sell a property, you guarantee, you represent in warranty that, that there are no encroachments, that nothing that belongs to your property goes onto somebody else's property, including the city's property. It doesn't have any guarantee that the neighbor's stuff doesn't go onto your property. Mm. So it's, a, it, which, which I guess is good and bad, but um, uh, encroachments happen all the time, whether it's eaves or the garage or fences or, you know, what have you. So the, the real property report's a great tool to see where those things are. I think fences has got to be like the number one where someone thinks the fence is on the property line and it's not. Yeah, it's true. And, and quite frankly, like as real estate lawyers, we do not worry about fences between neighbors. Uh, so it's on one person's property down the line. They, they don't need an encroachment agreement or anything to, to rectify it. Someone can just move it down the road. The city may require an encroachment agreement for a fence, or it could even if it's on a corner lot and the fence blocks people's view from the street, like to be able to drive safely, they may require it to be removed, which is, is rare, but it can happen. Okay. Now, the question that I really wanted to ask was, you mentioned title insurance. Yeah. What the, what the heck is that? How does it work? Why do people get it? So, you know, I'd say the number one reason people get it is because their lawyer kind of forces it on them. Uh, well, you know, and it's true. And I find insurance to be a very personal product. Like some people want life insurance, some people don't. Some people want disability insurance, some people don't. Um, a title insurance is a great tool in that it allows for someone to get insurance if there's an unknown defect. If you know about it, they won't insure it, which makes sense. Um, it protects against things like if part of the property was built in the wrong place or if there was no permits and someone's got to come in and um, spend money to fix the permitting issue. It also protects against title fraud. So if someone defrauds you of your title, you hand it over to the insurance company and, and they have to deal with it. Uh, it's relatively inexpensive for a house under half a million dollars. You're looking at about like 200, $225 for as long as you own the property. So it's really cheap and it's cheap because the incident rate is really low. Most people when given a choice, they don't want it. Um, it does offer some extra form protection. And you know, people ask, well, what do you think? It's like, I think it's up to you. 
I have it personally on my home. And the only reason I got it was just for the fraud piece. That's all I wanted for. I've encouraged my parents to do it for the same reason. But again, it's not, it's not something we as a firm push. Uh, we educate people and let them make an informed choice. And I think that's our obligation and responsibility as a lawyer is to help people understand what their options are and then let them make that choice as opposed to um, making a choice that has a financial consequence to them without them having the option. So how does that work with an RPR? Like, uh, is, is that a substitute for an RPR? No, there, there are some jurisdictions where it is. So in the United States, uh, and I think Ontario also, they, they use title insurance instead of real property reports. You know, the, the issue is, is nothing gets fixed. In Alberta, we still like to fix problems, so they're not problems anymore. And the, the medical analogy I like to use is, you know, if I go to my doctor and the doctor says, Jeff, you got high blood pressure. And they say, look, you can eat healthy, you can exercise, I can give you medication. Or you know what? You don't do anything, just get some extra insurance. So it doesn't, it doesn't fix anything, but there is a mechanism. There's like a dollar amount that happens if I die because I, you know, I've got high blood pressure. Same thing. Like, so with, with um, problems with property, a lot of things that are covered, I think there's like 120 different things that they cover for title insurance, you know, though, then you're fine. But there are limits to the coverage. It's not, definitely not a replacement to it. It does offer foreign protection. So it's a good tool, but it's not a replacement. Is there some times where the bank will require that they get title insurance when, in order to get a mortgage? Yeah, so bank will always either require, well, one of two things. They'll either always require title insurance or a real property report, or some lenders will always require uh, title insurance. So there's, there's a number of lenders, in, in less so the big banks, more the monoline lenders, and they will, um, um, and these are just companies, that's all they do is they lend for mortgages. Um, they, they will either require the law firm to buy the policy for them, in which case it's like that $200, or they use a third-party administrator for the process, and that, that third-party administrator is also a title insurance company. So that's like between three and $400 if they order the policy, because it's, it, it's more than just the policy, it's the... Um, uh, cost for administration also. Mm. Is that a product that's always purchased at the time of sale or is that something people can go and get regarding their property after the fact if they didn't get it initially? Yeah, you can get it anytime. I think it might be a little bit more expensive, but when I say a little more expensive, maybe like $50 or something. Okay. Uh, so it's not, it's not cost prohibitive. Over half million dollar home, we have to get um, uh, a, a quote just because it's not fixed below a half million dollars is it's easy. Okay. So where does somebody go to get title insurance with a general insurance provider or where, does, where do you find these people? Yeah, I think, I, I don't think it, I mean, I haven't heard that any of the title insurance companies sell direct to public. I think it's all through law firms. We, we don't, um, we're getting title insurance as part of a, a purchase or a refinance. We don't, we don't mark them up at all. It's just whatever the cost is we pass on to the client. Hmm. So you got to get it through a lawyer. Yeah, and, and I think it's because they want to make sure that, you know, someone's actually looked at the title and it's not, uh, it, it's just not a mess. Because they, they do, they have like an automated underwriting process that I don't think you could do on your own. Uh, but maybe we're wrong. It might have changed over the last couple of years, but you know, in, initially like, they've never sold to the public. Okay, I've got, an, I've got another question for you. Um, I know this happens all the time and might catch people by surprise a little bit. Um, but normally when somebody's buying a house and they're getting a mortgage, you act for both the bank that's providing the mortgage 
and the person that's buying the property. Can you talk a little bit about that, why that happens and why that's allowed to happen when, you know, normally you can't act for two different people? Yeah, so it's, I mean, it is a conflict because you're acting for someone who's borrowing money and wants to be secured and someone who is, or wants to, who's getting the money and, and the lender who wants to be secured. Um, historically, uh, the banks had their own lawyers and that still occurs for commercial transactions where the bank hires their own lawyer, prepares all the documents, sends it to the lawyer acting for the borrower and then they do the transaction and the borrower then pays the bank's $5,000, $6,000 bill to their lawyer. So I think to make buying a home a little more cost effective, instead of people having to pay two lawyers as part of the purchase process, they have uh, a lawyer who's acting for them, draft up the mortgage with instructions from the bank, have the client sign everything. And because of that conflict, we're required then to disclose everything between the lender and the person. So if our client comes in and says, oh, my name is really John Doe, and I'm going to put in the world's best grow up and um, you know, never going to pay this mortgage, we have an obligation to the bank. You know, the bank says anything bad for the client, we, we have an obligation to tell them. And like if a client defaulted on their mortgage, we couldn't act for the bank to pursue um, uh, the foreclosure against their own client. So it's, it's a full disclosure and uh, we couldn't act against the other person. Hmm. I didn't know that about that used to be uh uh banks have their own lawyers and then charge the, the purchaser yeah it used to be like a lucrative area of law for the lawyers who are representing the bank because literally they're just pushing out the same document over and over and over again um so i'm sure there were some people who are sad but i mean this, this is before my time like it's probably 30 years ago or 25 years ago that, that this went on right can I take us back to basics and ask a really silly question, which is what exactly are you doing for folks that are coming to you? Let's start with the buyer side. What, what are you helping them through? What's the process of purchasing a home? Yeah. Before you answer that, Jeff, Yeah. Oh. Heather, that's such a oh good question. It's <laughs> such a good question because people think real estate lawyers do nothing. They think, they think you do nothing, Jeff. Yeah. Well, we do a little bit. Like, I mean, we're literally at the very end of the whole process. So when you're buying a home, you're like doing inspections. You're making sure everything's okay. You're you're arranging your financing. You've dealt like with a, with a seller of a property, and we're at the end, um, really, you know, recording the actual transaction itself and making sure that you get ownership of the property without debts associated with it, without you know liens on the property and all that stuff. Um, and when there's problems along the way, we're, we're the ones who have to fix it. So, you know, whether it's an RPR issue that should have been dealt with before you're listed, uh, whether it's like issues with documentations for your lender, like we're, we're at the crux of it to make it all happen. And like I said, like we're making sure you get what you're supposed to get without uh, things that you don't want it. But a bank is also not going to give you like here's hundreds of thousands of dollars without making sure that they're secured. And so there, the bank is relying on us to make sure that there's security in place for them so you can actually get the money you need to pay for the property. Without it, the, the, the whole system doesn't work. Um, you know, we're, we're fortunate that there's good uh, um, parts in place in terms of law firms acting for buyers and sellers that we can do things to allow the transaction to happen smoothly. And, and in Alberta, um, I really like it. It's a little more laissez-faire than other jurisdictions like in bc they're very kind of strict and rigid in the uk they're very strict and rigid and i could if i can say in the uk there are times where entire strings of transactions just all fall apart um 
because you know one little piece fell apart. You know, Berta, like it's rare for a deal to fall apart, which is which is nice. Um, for the most part, when we're dealing with problems on possession days, it's because the lenders are not funding for one reason or another, or um, people go and take possession of the property and there's a problem. You know, someone's broken a window, there's a leak. Uh, you know, every time I think I've seen it all, someone proves me hopelessly wrong. You know, one, one file, they took the front lawn, they, they rolled it up and took it away. Um, you know, bullet holes, knife fights on possession days, meat under carpet underlay, you know, like litters of kittens left in the house. Uh, uh, twice, uh, the furnace was removed. We had a situation where the furnace was removed, and it was my client who took it. And I was like, hey, like, was it sentimental? Did grandma give it to you? Like, go put the furnace back. Um, so wow. it's, it, it's, it really, you know, the law in itself and the process is not exciting. It's the issues that make it fun and the people. Like I just love, uh, you get to meet your clients, you sit down with them, you get to know a little bit about their life and stuff and you're helping them buy a really exciting asset. And it's, mm. it's hard for them because, you know, if a person goes to Ikea to buy a bed, they're, they're going 15 times before they pick a bed. When they're buying a house, and I don't know if this has been your guys' experience, but for the most part, you see a whole bunch of houses. And when you see that right house, it's like an emotional thing. And um, you know, 20 minutes later, half hour later, you're writing an offer on it for your biggest financial purchase of your life. Mm. So it's uh, um, there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of different parts, and it's confusing for people. Uh, there's like eight different kinds of insurance that people hear about when they buy a house and we get to be in that place where we help to do the education piece and help people understand the process and that sounds like oh that that sounds like more than nothing <laughs> i think it's really important there's so many i mean heather and evan probably have the same thing that i hear is people who are first-time home buyers maybe in their 40s or 50s because their spouse had done all the work previously on the first home they don't even know do they go to the lender first do they go to a realtor first when would i contact a lawyer why you know how does this all fit together i think we probably have a number of listeners who want to know what the best practice is if they're a first-time homebuyer, whether they're younger or older, and, and have shame that they don't know how this works. <laughs> There's no shame. <laughs> we do this every day, and so it's like we, we, do, we try not to take for granted that people know the, the jargon and the words and all that, and it's largely irrelevant. Uh, typically, their first step will be to get qualified if they're buying a home, like make sure you know how much of a house you can afford. Uh, in fact, most real estate agents won't even take you around looking at houses unless you've been pre-approved. So they know that you can actually, like, we're not just wasting our time. What are we doing? Well, the movie theaters are closed. Let's go look at houses. Um, next step would be to go with your realtor to find the house. And uh, when you find a house, you're going to draft up the contract. And it's really important to make sure they talked about the conditions of the contract. And these are things that make the entire contract conditional on you saying, I'm okay with it. Let's go. So, you know, financing is a big one. Like if you can't get financing, you, you're not going to be able to buy the house. So you want to make sure that just because you are pre-approved, that your lender is saying you are okay to buy this specific house and you get that actual approval. Um, because again, you have a, finan a, a legal obligation to buy the home, even if suddenly they change their mind. So you have to be really careful with that. Home inspections, making sure you know what you're getting. So, okay, you're doing the inspection. No house is ever going to be perfect. But what's important for you to know is what it is that you're getting for that purchase price. And if there's something significant, maybe you can renegotiate, maybe not. But it's just, you know, either way, there's not a right or wrong. It's just knowing what, what issues are. 
And then really paying attention and working with your realtor to make sure that your your things that you're specifically concerned about are addressed. So some things are more important for different communities. Let's say you're buying in an older neighborhood. I would definitely have a sewer scope to make sure that there's not, you know, the sewer lines are going to collapse because that could be a $50,000, $60,000 hit. I would, you know, check for asbestos, you know, get an asbestos specialist. And for all those things, you're going to add a, a condition, uh, aluminum wiring. Like there's any number of things that people will be concerned about. And it's just a matter of making sure it's drafted into the contract. We are, uh, you know, as lawyers, we're here throughout the process. Most people only come to us after they've waived the conditions, but we're, 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 we're there every step of the way. In fact, as a firm, we have a toll-free after-hours number for realtors where if your real estate agent has a question or a concern or not sure how to draft something, they can get a hold of us to make sure that we can get it done because it's so much easier to fix a problem mm-hmm. before someone signs a contract than trying to turn around and fix it later. Like it's just it, it's much easier. Right. That makes tons of sense. What are some of the other big problems? What are things that go wrong? You mentioned sort of condition day, you mentioned encroachments. Are there other, other ways that this can go sideways that people can prevent or do some, yeah, do some prevention? Yeah. I mean, the nice thing about real estate law are most things are fixable. It might cost some money. It might cost um, like some time, but for the most part, they're fixable. So like, like something that happens all the time is like clients don't have ID and it could be straight out. They're just driving around their car without driver's license and, and don't have one. Or it can be, you know, someone's been married, divorced, married, divorced, and their ID just doesn't match what's on title or what's on the mortgage. Um, you know, those are easy things to prevent, but people just don't think about because when you get a new driver's license in Alberta, they give you that little slip of paper that says, this is not ID. Um, and, and it's not ID. Um, little things. Um, you know, making sure that you're prepared to buy. So like some financial institutions or if your money's in RSPs or invested, maybe it takes five days to get your money. And so if we can't have that money on the possession date because you didn't know that, um, you're going to pay some interest. It would be rare for the whole deal to fall apart. But it's like a, a really avoidable situation if just people knew in advance. Um, you know, sellers, we've talked about real property reports a lot. That comes up quite a bit. Uh, the other thing for sellers that's important is, is a, something that's called dower rights. So in Alberta, dower right is uh, legislation, so the law, that protects a person who's not entitled to the property to keep their spouse from being able to sell the property so that they end up with nowhere to live. And um, a, a spouse has to consent to anything that, you know, disposes of an interest in the property, a mortgage, a transfer, you know, that kind of thing. And so when, when you ask somebody what their marital status is, um, you know, for the most part, you say, oh, what's your marital status? They will say, is, is it, they'll say single. And single doesn't really answer that question because we have people all the time who are single and they can date whoever they want, whenever they want, mm-hmm. but they are currently still married to someone because they've been separated for 10 years. And even if you have a legal separation, that doesn't really do us any good because they're still dire rights, they're not divorced. And you know, when, when the real estate agent or mortgage person or someone asks, you know, marital status and they hear single, then that's often the end of it. But we have to really fine tune that because the consequences of lying on those on the, the dower stuff is huge. It's it's fifty percent of the value of the home, not the equity in the home, but the value of the home. Mm-hmm. So there there are times where our family lawyers will go after dower when someone is lied on dower, uh, lied on the dower stuff versus matrimonial stuff because 
great, there's like $40,000 equity in the house, we're going to fight over, you know, 20 each, or the property's worth half a million dollars, we want $250,000. So that there's like a huge uh, uh, deterrent from lying on dower. Mm-hmm. I, I've heard him. I think this is a myth, and I'm excited to talk to you and ask you if this is a myth or a reality. There are, I've heard in different conversations, I'm in the financial services, I'm in different conversations, different conferences all the time, and I have heard people in the past, which I don't believe, say that if you, let's say you're older and you take in a roommate and this person lives with you for a certain period of time, do, are they, do they gain any sort of power over that property? Is there any scenario where this would happen, where you would say to your client, do not move in with this person um, for these reasons they might, or don't let this person move in with you. They might gain control of your property in some capacity. What is this? Why does it come up? Like when you say move in with you, do you mean they're sharing a bed and cooking food for each other and doing each other's laundry? Or they're renting a room in the basement and just sharing with expenses? I'm curious about both. Okay. So if they're living together and one person's in the basement, they're not doing like the interdependent adult relationship type stuff. Um, the only time they'd really have uh, um, sort of an interest in the property, if they were doing something like say they're living there, they um, um, were paying rent and then, you know, the person asked them to remodel, redo the whole house and they've been doing renovations or something. And there might be like an unjust enrichment kind of argument that, you know, we've done this work, you haven't paid me, I want some of this money out. Another situation that would work in either one of those two scenarios would be if one person started to lose their capacity and that person used their undue influence to try and convince them uh, to change their will or something. It's not to say that they're really entitled to it in those situations, but it could come up as, as a problem. Uh, in terms of adult interdependent relationships where they're living, you know, as a couple in the home, um, that's going to be more of an Evan question because he does the family law. Again, I like the happy law. Evan likes the not happy law. <laughs> um, so like a very different worlds, but for those ones, definitely there, there are situations where they will have an entitlement to part of the property. Now it, it raises something interesting. And especially with your financial background is, you know, people who either um, add uh, a parent or a sibling or somebody to title to the property in order to avoid probate. Uh, you know, so they'll add, um, you know, the, the parent will add one of their kids or for qualifying conditions or to avoid dower rights. Uh, and that is fraught with problems. We see all the time where people just don't want to give back, uh, you know, what they consider their share of the property, even though they've never ever contributed to it. It ends up being a fight. We usually win. But, you know, the, for, for probate in Alberta, and, you know, maybe things change with, you know, provincial debt and stuff like that, but probate fees to the government cap out at about 500 bucks or 550 bucks. So, like, financially, it doesn't really make sense to take on those risks to, um, um, uh, you know, add someone's title for that reason alone. And, you know, people have a hard time picturing that their familial relationships are going to break down. So I ask them, well, think about this. Suppose your kid you've added on started their own business and they went bankrupt. And now they're on title to this property and it could be considered an asset of theirs that's a, a um, lender is going to go after. Or they're driving on the road and uh, you know, they answer their cell phone and they run into like a bunch of people at a bus stop and maybe they have a million dollars insurance but they get sued for $2 million. Mm-hmm. So I try and take out the emotional piece of the family part and you always recommend that people not maybe do that uh, or they do it after making like really an informed choice. 
And for people who have adult children who won't, who refuse to leave home, um, maybe they help out around the house fixing toilets or something along those lines. I have, I have actually a significant number of clients who have adult children who won't leave home. Do, do they gain more control over that home than the other kids in that, in that household? You know, unfortunately, I, not from a legal standpoint, but from a uh, hands-on um, practical standpoint, they often do. Um, you know, just because they're living in the home, they don't necessarily uh, get more. It's more of a wills and estates or, or wills and estates litigation question in terms of, uh, you know, can they go after because they're a dependent of the person? Um, um, but, you know, for the most part, it's problematic because the will will often say, we're going to, I'm going to give my home to my three kids. And the one who's been there is the person who's like in charge of the estate. And there's not really, uh, there's, there's nothing that motivates them to want to make that change and sell the house for the estate because they're living there for free. And so that, that comes up quite a bit in estate litigation. Right. Yeah, Kim, you're really running the gamut. You went like real estate, family law, estate administration, squatters. It's like, it's like, it's like suits, right? You get one lawyer who does, does everything. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, unjust, Jeff mentioned unjust enrichment. That's a, uh, that's a concept that is less, uh, in, less used now in family law because of the new legislation that came, well, at least in Alberta, I should say, because of the new legislation that just came into effect in Alberta. But, you know, maybe Heather, that's something we could talk about later on a different podcast, because that is certainly, um, maybe not a whole podcast worth, but it's certainly something that is, um, is, is complicated. Yeah. I guess it ties into a question that I was going to ask you, Jeff, that's, again, kind of takes us back to the basics. So how do you know if someone has a claim against a house or a property and what is title? Can you talk about that a little bit? Like, sure. Yeah, so so title, in, in Alberta, we have what's called the Torrent System. It's a fancy name, but it's actually one of the best line title systems in the world. Um, we, we may be a little sluggish, you know, that our government may not have invested in the like the technical infrastructure, but it, as, a, as a land title system, your title is guaranteed by the province. So, and it's guaranteed that you can rely on that paper title that shows uh, who owns it and what encumbrances are on it. So an encumbrance meaning, uh, you know, we'll, we'll forget about things like right away is in YouTube, like utilities and stuff like that, but like, like a mortgage or right. someone has a line of credit that's registered as a mortgage or a promissory note that's secured on title. So we can rely on those things to, to offer us protection. So um, when, when you have a copy of title, one of the things you're going to look for for those family law situations is that someone file what's called the Certificate of Liz 10 Pendants. So Certificate of Pending Litigation. I think it's Latin. Come on, Evan, Latin? Yeah. Yeah, Latin. So. Good old Latin. I took Latin in grade nine. I didn't do so well. Um, and, and so that will be an indicator that someone has uh, started a claim or a writ is another thing. Like a certificate list penance just means that someone is pursuing something against the house, but they haven't won in court. Right. If they win in court, they then sort of upgrade it to what's called a writ. And the writ is this person is actually owed and won in court. Either way, when you're selling a house, we've got to deal with it. But that, that's what we're looking for on title to the property. Um, and those can be registered at any time. So if we know there's like a nasty divorce scenario uh, and there's nothing on title, we, we operate from the perspective of that it could pop up at any time just to protect its interests. 
Okay, that makes sense then. So that's part of your role then too, is having a look at that title and letting people know what's on it, explaining what's registered against it and what all those things mean. Yeah. Gotcha. Do you ever get uh, surprises, Jeff, of, uh, when you go to review the title and then there's something on there that the, if you're representing the seller, that they didn't know was on there and is a problem all the time? So, I mean, my favorite is something that's innocent, but we'll have sellers who like are so angry. I don't have a mortgage, I don't have a mortgage, but they have a line of credits uh, and a line of credit is secured on title as a mortgage. And so, especially the older generation, like I paid off my mortgage, I don't have a mortgage. You do. Other times, one of the problems is, is that in Alberta, uh, a mortgage company, when a mortgage is paid out, legally has 30 days to discharge that mortgage. But oftentimes they're taking like six to eight months or years. And so we'll go on title to a property and there's actually two mortgages, one from like eight years ago, one from like three years ago. And you, you know intellectually that it was probably paid out and a new one added, but you don't know for sure. And other times, uh, you know, we've acted for sellers where uh, every day we're having notifications that there's more things being put on title. So one mortgage, a second mortgage, a third mortgage, uh, they're not paying their trades. And so we've got uh, um, uh, builder's liens being put on the property. So it, it could be any number of things. CRA then puts on a lien because they're owed money. The condo board is putting on uh, a lien because they're owed money. The uh, uh, community association is adding things. The city tax assessment are loading something on title because they're owed. Um, I'd like to think it's just because people don't know what their title looks like and ignores the letter they get in the mail from land titles versus they're trying to you know, pull one over on us, but it's there for the world to see. I mean, caveats, which caveats are on title, means beware. Again, some good Latin language for us all. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Caveat emptor is the fancy way to say buyer beware. Buyer beware. Yeah. Um, I had a, a, a going back to the value that a lawyer might bring to a real estate transaction type question. So I just picture if we could picture a world where lawyers are not doing real estate transactions and uh, you go to your bank, you know, you get your bag of money and you go to the person to get the keys and you're like, hand me the keys. And they're like, hand me the money, you know, and then you have a standout who, who goes first up. Well, yeah. I'll give you the money if you give me the keys. How do we solve that, that problem in Alberta? Cause that's, that's like a transactional type issue. That, that would make it even easier if just like a bag of money and keys because you could just like swap these and everything's okay. Um, the, the process in Alberta is a little complex, but it works. So um, your, your lender, we are, let's start with the seller. The seller doesn't want to give ownership of a home to someone unless they get paid. Like, I don't want to give you ownership unless I get money. But a, a buyer's lender doesn't want to give that person hundreds of thousands of dollars unless they are securing that interest on title in that person's name. So it's like a big catch 22. What the process that we use to make that work is the, the buyer's lawyer um, has a buyer sign two documents, one called a transfer back and one called a, a tenancy at will agreement. And there's some other parts to it, but basically a transfer back gives ownership back to the sellers if they don't get paid. The tenants at will makes a, a buyer a tenant of the seller until they're paid in full. Uh, they can be evicted if they don't get paid. And so the, 
the seller's lawyer is giving the title documents to the buyer's lawyer on the lawyer giving a personal promise that they're going to, that they have all these documents in place and that they're going to transfer over the money when the money comes. And, and it goes from there. It's very, very rare that things fall apart where we have to undo the transaction in Alberta. I, I think they say maybe it happens once in a lawyer's career. Uh, I've been doing this when well, my, my law degree is old enough to drink throughout Canada and can almost drink in the United States now. Uh, so I've been doing it for a while. I've not had my turn where it didn't work out. We had to reverse things. Came close once. And the only reason was because the CRA was on strike at the time. And so our buyer couldn't get a notice of assessment showing that he didn't owe any taxes. And so his lender wasn't going to advance money because the CRA has a super priority lien um, that beats out everyone. So lenders want to make sure there's not outstanding taxes. And so things were delayed for about three weeks. Everyone kept level heads. It all worked out in the end. Uh, that's as close as I got to my having to use uh, the transfer back. But that, that's the process in a nutshell. Michelle. Mm. Okay, that resolves the standoff on the on the doorstep then with the keys yes. and the bag of money. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, and I think that's what they used to do. They used to go to the courthouse, and at the courthouse, they just trade. Like the lawyers, like here's money, here's here's keys. Uh, we just don't do that anymore. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, that, you can see it's a little dangerous. I mean, I. Uh, I lived in Kuwait for a little while and I didn't personally have this experience, but I heard about others having this experience when they were in the Middle East where there'd be a situation where you give somebody money to buy something and then they pretend that it never happened. The person that received the money, like, I don't know what you're talking about. And that could be a problem if you give someone a few hundred thousand dollars for a house. I'm like, I'm not sure what you mean. You didn't give me the money. So believe it or not, that happens in Canada quite frequently. Uh, I don't do litigation law, but I get the phone calls of people coming in. And it's more like in a business standpoint. Oh, yeah, yeah. you invest in my company for like, give me $200,000 and you'll be a shareholder, like no problem. And you'll have a job and whatever. And then like a year later, the person fires the person. They're like, well, what about my money? what money you didn't you didn't invest in the company and there's no paperwork like nothing at all um in wow. mexico my, my dad lives in mexico for a bunch of the year and he uh you know there it's like all cash you give your cash and you hope that you get your title at some point um and there's probably delays of like two or three years there so um i, I haven't heard of people just absconding with the money but yeah, it's uh, we, we've got a pretty good system. Like it, mm. it has its frustrating points, and their Glenn titles, they have to manually enter stuff. Uh, they're four weeks behind now, but you know they're often like three or four days or five days behind. You know, just a busy market right now. Yeah. Um, so it's not perfect, but it's pretty darn good. Nice. How Get much it. do lawyers? I, I like to ask the money questions. How much do lawyers cost? Is there a range? Do you have a packaging system? Do you have a limited scope situation? Tell me all about how you charge and what people could expect from, I guess, you and your peer group as a range. Yeah, so so most firms uh, operate a little differently than ours. Most firms will give a person a price plus disbursements, but not really explain what the disbursements are. Uh, sometimes they'll add on file administration fees, they'll add on photocopy charges, which aren't proper disbursements. A disbursement is something that the firm pays to a third party on their client's behalf. Um, you know, like sending a fax is not a disbursement. Um, and I've seen some funny things where partners of a firm form a number company that buys the title and buys the tax search for $6 each and sells them back to the firm for $35. That's not okay, it shouldn't happen. But you know, my view when I started real estate law was that if you're doing this for a living, you should be able to figure out how many couriers you need 
and how much land titles is good. Because it's a formula. You can figure out what these numbers are going to be. It's not that hard. And so we, we like on our website, we publicly display what our fees are, and they include all the usual disbursements. Um, so sometimes I'm sure we lose clients because they say, well, you know, they're a little more expensive. And then they get their bill from the other firm. They're all mad because, mm-hmm. oh, oh, that didn't include the disbursements. The other thing is it keeps us accountable. So, you know, if a firm is a plus disbursement fee structure, if let's say the lawyer forgets to witness something, they've got to send a courier to land titles on a rush back and forth, whatever, like like an extra 50 bucks in couriers. They just add that onto their, their client's bill. It doesn't matter. Like us, that comes out of our pocket. So like we're, we're encouraged to keep things going efficiently. Um, we talked about title insurance and how some firms just throw it on their client's tab. So like title insurance does offer some protection to the lawyer when a, when a client has that policy. Um, but you know, if you're doing your job, you should be doing your job and you don't have to worry about it. Um, so like some of those firms will be just throwing it on and adding that on as a disbursement uh, for the client's bill without getting, you know, their permission to do that. So it's, you know, there, there, there's all over the map, but there's a pretty tight range. And real estate law is really like, it's not a higher margin area of law. Like there's, there's a lot of competition in it, but there is a big difference between uh, someone who is working from home, maybe without support staff, um, um, and they might not be able to provide the same level of service as someone that's got like a full team being able to address all clients' issues. Everyone has um, their priority, for some people, they just want like the cheapest. And I've told people, I will give you the cheapest lawyer in the city. I don't want you to sign a waiver, but you know, that, that is, if that's someone's value, that's okay. Like there's no judgment on it. Some people will buy like crappy tools or cars that are going to fall apart or, you know, like you know, whatever, like everyone has a different choices. Um, we're about the middle of the road and there's some firms that are more expensive. Some of them offer really, really good service and some of them kind of offer average service. So it's like any other um, uh, industry, I suppose that way. You didn't answer Kim's question. I know she's <laughs> going to come back at you for a dollar figure. Well, you know, again, it depends on the value of the property. So, because land title fees for us are included in the in the in the um, value. So, let's say you're selling a house or you're buying a house for. Um, uh, Evan, do you have the website up? I don't have it in front of me, but yeah, I, oh, I can pull it up. Yeah. So like like a, a purchase of a house with a new mortgage of say like four hundred thousand dollars or between four and five hundred thousand dollars, I think it's like thirteen fourteen hundred bucks. Sorry, it's going to take me a sec, Jess. I've never looked up a real estate fees before because I don't practice in real estate. I, I, I can grab real quick. <laughs> nobody nobody asked me those questions. All right, so. Sixteen seventy-five for someone who's buying a new house between four or five hundred thousand dollars with a mortgage, and that includes all the hard costs for land titles, registering the mortgage, registering the property in the person's name, courier searches, all the usual stuff. And it's a thousand fifty if we're doing the sale on the same property. Less less hard costs on a sale than a purchase. All in. Well, we still have to. Federal government still makes us charge GST. Right. Right. Those, those jerks. I know. Brian, Brian Moroni. <laughs> oh, it's false. Oh, uh, they said they'd get rid of it. Liars. Yeah. Um, the, uh, I guess the last question I have here uh, is trust account. Mm-hmm. What, does, what role does that play in real estate transaction? 
I mean, our trust account is where all the money goes for a real estate transaction. Uh, we're governed by the law society and we have to keep certain accounting rules in place and make sure that like, we can't do anything with that money uh, except what we're supposed to do with that money. And that's like, like I will lose my ability to practice law if I screw with that, that, that money in any way. And so the money that comes in from the bank will sit in the trust account. We will then write a check to the other lawyer uh, acting for the seller and it will go into their trust account. They will then use it to pay off like mortgages, debts on title, real estate commissions, uh, legal fees, and then send the rest of the money to their client. So I don't know if there's anything more that you're looking for in the question, but that's in essence what they're used for. So let's say you've got like a million dollars in your trust account because you've got a few transactions happening. Can you just use that as leverage to invest or? No, no, you can't touch it. For, in the, you, you cannot touch it in any way possible. And let's say you've got like 200 clients and you've got between them like $8 million in your trust account. If you're short from one client, you can't like use another client's money to sort of make up for it until that client brings in the money. Like accounting wise or trust accounts, every client gets their own trust account within our trust account. So they have uh, their file number, they have their amount of money. We can't overdraw it. We can't, um, you know, we can't use the money in any way other than for that client. Trust accounts don't produce interest. Well, they do produce interest, but the interest is paid to law societies to help find protection of the public. Um, and uh, so there's not there's not an advantage to the lawyer in any way by keeping funds in the trust account. In fact, usually we want to get rid of them as quick as we can. Like that's, uh, I mean, really, it's it means that you know, if we're holding back money for two years because there's a problem, it means we got two years. We got we got to like babysit money that wouldn't normally you know have to do. Um, so there, there's like zero advantage to the lawyer keeping it in their account, and we're not allowed to. Um, just throw uh, flow money through our trust account. Like it's very regulated. So, um, you know, we've had clients and I'm pretty sure they're trying to like launder money. They're like, oh yeah, we'll just like give you the money here and then you write us a check there. It's like, mm -mm, no. Mm -hmm, <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. no, that's, yeah, that's what I was, you said what I was kind of going for, which is, you know, a lot of people don't understand, I think, how tightly regulated our trust accounts are. I mean, you, you can't be short anything if, if if you're short anything and you don't catch it that's a problem and even if you not even a penny we've got to we've got to do a reconciliation every month to make sure that every single penny is accounted for and if you're off by a penny you don't know if you're off on one transaction by one penny or if you're off by like one dollars uh, in one direction and then a million dollars in the other and it's just nets a penny difference so every month you got to go through and find out like where any little discrepancy is. And in fact, we can't do um, anything. Oh, there's a creepy person behind Heather. Oh, the door just closed. Oh, oh. I thought we just prevented something here a little. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we just, well, we got your back. We got your back. <laughs> uh, literally. Um, we, we were, um, we had a number of files where you're writing a, a client a check for five cents or a penny or two pennies and they're throwing out the checks and not cashing them. Yeah. And the law society came back to us and said like, you've got to then use that money, get a bank draft or money order and send them the, the client that money because then you're actually sending them the money. So it's like costing 10 bucks to get rid of it. So it's like, we're very careful now. We tell clients like, make sure you cash that check please because we mm -hmm. don't want your extra $1.37 lingering in our trust account. Yeah. It's very, very regulated. 
Like, I think we're now, the, the program that we're using that runs like our, our uh, accounting software, they just bumped it's like $36,000 a year. It's like ridiculous. And then you have to have uh, full audits every year. It's like, like it, it's a, it's, but it's important. That is what protects the public. Yeah. It's yeah. a big responsibility that we have when people are yes. letting us hold on to their money for them. Yeah. And that, that is like, then if someone's going to get disbarred as a lawyer, it's be, going to be because they did something with the trust account, either in a nefarious way yeah. or because they were just like lazy or just didn't follow the rules. Like, even if you're just not doing anything wrong, but aren't doing what you're supposed to be doing, you can lose your ability to practice law. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's important because it, uh, you know, it helps lubricate transactions, right? Like, like being able to have faith in the lawyer's trust account, that that money is sacred, that is really key to helping the world go around in a, in a way. That's a, that, I would say that's a key part of real estate transactions is that we can hold money. Lawyers are trusted to um, hold those funds sacred, so to speak. You know, here's a, a fun example of that. I had a client that came in and um, he refused to let me make a copy of his ID to the point where we had to call the national bank that he was using uh, for a transaction and say to him, if you don't let the lawyer take a copy of the ID, we're not giving you your mortgage money. The same guy handed me a bank draft for half a million dollars, but instead of putting it to the firm in trust, he made it payable to me personally. And, and so like he had absolute faith in us having his money but but not his id <laughs> interesting yeah he was an interesting fella <laughs> yeah i get that sometimes where people are really uptight about the id yeah but not their money like mm. i mean i'm not going to lose my ability to practice law for half my own bucks but like, he was more concerned about that yeah <laughs> crazy <laughs> Heather, do you have any other questions on your mind about real estate? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think that's been super helpful. Um, were there any other, Jeff, any other uh, questions that you get all the time from the real estate agents? I get, I get a lot of questions from real estate agents, and I'll just put it this way. It is so important for you to find a real estate agent that you can trust and relate to um, and get along with because you're, you're really putting a lot of faith in them. And um, what I'd say when you're doing a transaction with a real estate agent, have them explain things to you before you sign them. Um, you know, hopefully they're not just saying, here you go, sign it, sign it, sign it. Hopefully they're taking it through things and making sure that you understand. Um, anytime that there's something that has to be uh, drafted differently in the contract, you know, ask your agent to talk to the lawyer because that, that's part of our are being there for you is making sure that we're helping them draft things. So it's drafted property in a way that protects you and reflects your interest along with the interest of the person selling the property. Like, so that we've got a meeting of the minds in terms of what the transaction looks like. Um, you know, I can't even start. I literally, I'll get five or 10 uh, questions a day from real estate agents. And some of them are like really good questions. And some of them are ones that kind of scare me. Um, but you, you know, it's it, you. You take the good and the bad, and you know we go back to the very first thing we started talking about is you know why why do this, and it's about education, helping to make the system great. I love what I do. I love our industry. I love the people that I work with, and um, 
if, if we can make one little change for one person, it's all worth it. And I, like I do, I'll teach for the Law Society, I'll teach for the Real Estate Board of uh, 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 Calgary Real Estate Board. Uh, I've taught at UFC at the law school. I've taught for uh, the Alberta Mortgage Broker Association, RECA, which is the Real Estate Council of Alberta. I'm on an education committee for AMBA, the Alberta Mortgage Broker Association. I think it's so important to help us educate because it's what lets the public know what's going on. Ask your questions. Like if I was going to give one piece of advice to, to the public, if you have a question, don't sit there uncertain because it's a big deal. Like buying your house is a big thing. Call your lawyer, ask them the question. And if they're not willing to take the time to you know, have that two minute conversation, because really most of the questions I get from the public or from realtors um, are things that are, you know, maybe it's a two to five minute phone call. They're not you're like, oh, I've got this crazy situation. What's the situation? Oh, that happens all the time, not a big deal. Um, so most of the time, it doesn't take very long. You want to make sure you're working with someone who who takes that time with you. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. That's a, I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, when they get a lawyer for a real estate transaction, that they have a lawyer. I think they just think, I just go there to sign documents and, and uh, the lawyer doesn't, some lawyers don't even tell their clients anything. They just have them sign documents. Well, you know, I always tell people, if you're going to hire a real estate lawyer, there's three things you want to pay attention to, maybe four. But one, get an all-in price for them. Like, know what you're paying in advance, and it shouldn't be hard for them to figure that out. Two, you know, pick a lawyer that doesn't dabble. Like, you want someone who knows real estate transactions. No different than a doctor that performs the same surgery all the time is going to be really good at that surgery. You know, the more time, the more situations you're exposed to, the more things you see, the better you are going to be at be able to respond and, and, and provide service for your client. And then three, if you're calling them for a quote, see how long it takes them to call you back. The number one complaint to the law society is that lawyers don't call their clients back in a timely manner. And if it's taking them three days to give you a call back when you're trying to give them work, imagine if you're on your front lawn trying to get into the house, trying to get a hold of someone, like you really want to make sure that you're dealing with someone that's going to be responsive to you. Um, and if you save 50 bucks, it's not worth it. I'll tell you right now, like you need to be able to get a... Most things aren't urgent, like I need to talk to you in five minutes, but you want to make sure that there's a reasonable turnaround time. The last thing is, um, when I say there might be one extra is, you know, most firms, I'm hoping now, the lawyers are actually meeting with clients and they're not just having paralegals sign with them. You're paying for a lawyer, you should meet with a lawyer. You should feel comfortable that you can ask the lawyer questions and review the documents with them and go over things. So I think that's all pretty important. Yeah. I would agree. I, I I bought a house back before I was a lawyer, and I thought, man, that seems like a sweet gig. That that guy spent like fifteen minutes with me, and he got paid like fifteen hundred bucks. Yeah, if if only that was it. <laughs> of course, you know now I know a little bit better, but still, like I got, I didn't get very much value out of that meeting. And um, you know where I where I articled, they they had a real estate practice, and then I got to see how it's done properly. They put that lawyer that did the real estate transactions, put a lot of, put their time in it and had a proper sit down meeting where they explained everything. Like I, I've been in meetings with you, Jeff, and I know you do the same thing where you go through every document, you let them know, you explain all the, all the key things. And, um, you know, that's what, th that's, that's what people are paying for. Yeah. I, I won't let, when a client says, oh, just let me sign here, sign here. I won't do it. Like there is a minimum that you need to understand and be aware of when you sign documents. And it doesn't mean it has to be a long meeting, mm. but I think it's really important. Like 
say 15, 20 minutes for uh, a sale, like maybe a little bit more if a person has more questions. Uh, purchase is, you know, 20, 25 minutes, a little bit longer because there's a mortgage, there's more paperwork. But it's, it's so important. Like there's so many things that can come up at risk factors that you need to understand. Um, I want to make sure that you have like a, at least a basic understanding of the transaction. Um, and, and that's important. Like, I think it's really, really important for people. Kim, any last points from you? I'm blown away. I, I'm, I'm kind of like you, Evan. I've never, well, I've never been a lawyer, so I wasn't a lawyer when I bought my house 14 years ago. And I had a friend who was a lawyer help me out. We, I don't even think we talked. Like, the, I think the documents were couriered. I got, I paid 800 and some bucks for it, and there was no discussions that were had. And I, I'm thinking back to that and thinking like, my buddy should have known better. He should have had us come into the office to have a discussion about it. So um, yes, buyer beware, go and uh, meet with the lawyer. They are getting paid to provide legal services. So. <laughs> my, my, my stepdad, I remember we were talking and before uh, I was a lawyer, he, uh, he had bought and sold a few houses. And he said, Jeff, like I used the same firm for four or five transactions. I never even met or spoke with the lawyer, let alone met with them. Mm -hmm. like, and they like, um, how do you do that? Like, how do you respect the person when you shave in the morning? Like, how do you respect that person when you're not providing a, a service or value to people? So, but, you know, maybe some people prefer it that way. We're just like in and out. They're not here, you know, not wasting the time understanding what they're doing. Um, yeah, I just, it's just not the way I operate. I like understanding education. It's not just like giving information. I like sucking it up too. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and sometimes people don't know what they don't know either. So hopefully folks that are listening will be like, Oh, okay. Next time, maybe I do want to be asking some more questions or getting some more information about what I'm getting myself into here. So yeah, ask away. And we'll tell people when they're done our meetings, like if you have a question, even in two years, call us, we're not going to charge you more. Like we, we want you to understand yeah. as much as you want to understand. And um, they say like people, they're more worried about when do I get the keys? So there's so much going on. So I know they're not going to retain everything and yeah. things that are really, really important. I like, I point out to them, I like make it clear on the sheet where it is. Often we'll have them initial next to it on things that are really important. Um, just to try to bring their attention to it. But even still, like we've got parts of our forms that they sign that are big, bold, and they get a call two days later. Jeff, Jeff, what about this? What about this? It's like, hey, this is the part, the big bold part that we talked about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember we talked about this? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it can happen even when you take the time. Yeah. 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 It's that thing of like, when I go to the doctor, I can leave and then I'm, my husband will be like, what did she say? And I'll say, I, I don't know. <laughs> right? I wish I understood Greek. Yeah, exactly. I was there. <laughs> but it's good to know that uh, folks can call you back and you'll you'll explain things the second time and make sure that they understand. So. Yeah, I, I just think it's important. Yeah. Yeah. Now, before we wrap it up here, Jeff, what are all those little boxes behind you over your left shoulder? Maybe it's your right oh. shoulder. Pez. <laughs> Pez. Lots and lots of Pez. I don't know if I'm going to stretch over here. Are you just a candy junkie or what? What's going on? Well, I am. I, I am 100% a candy junkie. I like my chocolate and my sweets, like absolutely. But yeah, it became a fun little um, uh, collection that over the years I've now done. I think 19 different interviews for newspaper, TV, magazines. Uh, I was invited to go to Hong Kong for a uh, um, what do you call it? Like a exposition down there and bring the collection down. Uh, I've been at the superstore and people come up to me. Hey, are you the Pez lawyer? I was like, yes. Can you do our wills? 
I mean, like, oh, we can do them. We'll do a good job. But is that really how you want to pick a lawyer? <laughs> uh, you know, it's fun. And um, uh, yeah, it, it just kind of like turned into a silly little hobby. It's fun. Do you have a favorite? I do. Like, I have a couple of them. Like, I have some of like the really old school ones um, um, that they don't produce anymore. Uh, there's there's some that were produced during World War II that... Um, um, that like have some interesting history behind them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so like, I like, I like those ones, but like, I'm not, I, you know, I, I argue that I'm not super passionate about it. Like I, I, like I've done the interviews and stuff, uh, but more because I'm easy to find, I think. Um, it, yeah, it's just, it's just really neat. Like there's something I'm looking at some of the big ones they have, like, like Barbie, uh, Betty Boop. Um, there's one that kicks out dog biscuits instead of Pez. Um, uh, Star Wars, you know, there's, there's like, like Pez for everything. And at one point I had, um, there was a limited edition Pez, uh, issued by Pez for Will and Kate's wedding when they got married. Mm-hmm. And, um, I ended up losing the auction by about 50 bucks. It wasn't a lot, but I had like the, the, the TV cameras from the news, like waiting with me watching and everything. And they were all excited. And, um, um, so they, well, it's kind of a piece of plastic. And I said, like, yeah, it's kind of right. Cause it sold for like, $18,000, whatever it was at the time. Wow. But the the most expensive Pez was also a one-off uh, production. There was only one of them, not two, and Will and Kate, there was two. And it doesn't have the, it was like an astronaut, which doesn't have the same kind of following as like the royal stuff. Mm. And that sold for $32,000. So like as an investment, and I didn't buy it. I mean, I'm more rationalizing it after the fact, but um, I not horrible. <laughs> yeah, there's there's worse investments out there. Like, yeah. Now right. spending spending eighteen thousand or thirteen two thousand dollars on a piece of plastic that's got candy in it, you know, well, it's good that I didn't win. <laughs> but you know, what about these non fungible tokens? Oh, I was just about to say that. That's so right. funny. Yeah. You're paying like million dollars for something that doesn't have a physical existence. Yeah, yeah, like the pretend little, uh, what, what is it called? Like dog something or uh, no? Dogecoin. Yeah, that's the yeah, one. <laughs> the cri- yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, maybe you guys can help me out. And, and I apologize for going way off topic. I'm reading that Elon Musk is saying, you know, we'll go back to Bitcoin when it's more, you know, sustainably environmentally mined. But isn't it just like an electronic something that doesn't exist? Uh, it's because the it's because in order to mine it, which is how they stay secure and everything, it takes an insane amount of computing power. People set up um, Bitcoin miners mm-hmm. that generate enough heat so that they don't have to use like um, baseboard heaters. They can use their computer that they're using to do the mining. Yeah. So it's very energy consumptive. Yeah. And so he said, interestingly, though, he sold off his Bitcoin, I think, and then made that comment when it was high, and then made that comment. And then Bitcoin mm. tanked a bit. But now he's talking about like, oh, maybe Bitcoin will use it again. So I think he's being accused of a little bit of market manipulation, uh, maybe. Well, that's, you know, when you have an unregulated <laughs> industry. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Yeah. There's a CBC doc right now called crypto, a death in crypto land or something about a young man who was doing a whole bunch of cryptocurrency market stuff. It's fascinating, but we're way, we're way off topic now. <laughs> That's okay. We usually start off topic and then go on topic. So now we're ending off topic. It works. It's full circle. We, Great. We might be predicting the future. You might be selling homes with, um, you know, Dogecoin in a in a few years, Jeff. So you know, you never know. Yeah, it's uh, way <laughs> above my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jeff, thanks so much for doing this. We appreciate it. Um, this has been another episode of Access to Justice. We thank you for listening and or watching. If you have any questions you'd like us to address on the podcast, send an email to access to justice podcast at gmail.com. That's access, the number two, justicepodcast at gmail.com. And we'll do our best to get your answer on an upcoming episode. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Any information in this video is general information only and is not, nor is it intended to be, legal advice. Watching this video does not create a lawyer-client relationship. You should always seek the advice of a lawyer or other qualified professional for advice regarding your individual situation. While we take care to ensure that the information contained in this video is accurate and up-to-date, we make no warranties or representations as to the suitability, completeness, or accuracy of the information contained in this video. Any reliance you place on the information is at your own risk. Kahane Law Office, Merrick Law, Heather Mallory Professional Corporation, Evan Clark Professional Corporation, Evan Clark, Heather Mallory, and any guests will not be responsible nor liable in any way for any content, including but not limited to any errors or omissions in the content, or for any loss or damage of any kind incurred as a result of any content communicated in this video, whether by Evan Clark, Heather Mallory, or by a third party. Tim McDonald is a financial advisor with Raymond James Limited. Information provided is not a solicitation, and although obtained from sources considered reliable, is not guaranteed. The view and opinions contained in this media are those of Kim McDonald, not Raymond James Limited. Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. Graceful fingers intertwine, comfort gladdens.